My name is Mark Madison, and I am so very proud to have Fujitsu General America as a sponsor. At Fujitsu, they're focused on partnering with the best distributors and contractors to ensure that each Fujitsu heating and cooling system brings infinite comfort to every end user. My guest today is Jay Lipsy. He's a partner of Macambi Group. Makami Group grows, capitalizes, and transitions middle market family businesses with an emphasis on preserving values and legacy. They seek to improve underlying marketability, valuation, and assist in addressing secession issues. Good morning. Welcome to Mark Madison on Books and People. Today, we are privileged to have my friend Jay Lipsy as a guest. Jay, good morning. How are you? Doing well, Mark. How are you? You know, if I was doing any better, I'd be twins. Honestly, in the midst of all the things we're going through, I find myself just grateful and, and happy to be getting caught up in some things that I just haven't had time to do. So you want to have some fun? Let's do it. Let's do it. So, Jay, tell me, uh, we met because you read an article I wrote for one of the trade magazines? That's right. That's right. I had, I had read something that you – you put together and it uh, certainly piqued my interest. And I called you, you called me or I called you. We talked, we got to be friends. And then you told me what you did. And I thought, man, what an interesting guy. So for the purpose of our, uh, for our listeners, so they can understand what I know about you, tell us what exactly it is you do. Sure, Mark. So I'm a partner at McCombie Group. And we are a strategic and M&A advisory firm. We're based in South Florida and really work with lower middle market business owners nationwide on really whatever their needs may be along the lines of strategic planning, uh, capital markets, financing, investment banking, succession planning, et cetera. And in addition to all those things, you also buy companies, correct? That's correct. We, uh, we're a, a true merchant bank, so we also have a principal investment arm in which we partner with a high net worth individual or a family office to make a long-term investment into another family or founder-owned operating business under a long-term buy-and-hold strategy. Got it. Now, how did you get started doing this? You've been doing it a while. Absolutely. Great question, Mark. So my, uh, my, my partner and um, founder of the firm, David McCombie, um, we, we had known each other and met shortly after he started McCombie Group about 10 years ago. And um, as the, the practice gained traction in helping family offices evaluate direct deal flow that they were receiving, um, you know, I guess uh, inbound, but didn't necessarily have the infrastructure or team to do the underwriting, the due diligence, um, really the, the process management, that uh, McCombie Group really carved out a niche in that space. And um, I, I joined David about six years ago. And after spending enough time looking at enough deals with enough families, we really felt like we could allow our, our, our business to evolve and instead of just being reactive to deals they were bringing us to go out and on a proactive basis find investment opportunities that were not only interesting in their own right from a risk return standpoint, 
but specifically interesting and well aligned with the family office investor and their buy and hold strategy. You'd said to me once, companies might not be looking to sell their business today, but they should be taking the necessary steps to improve their underlying marketability and valuation. Can you explain that a little bit? Absolutely, Mark. So, you know, the, a, a business owner and, you know, even if it's a first generation and often it's a second or third generation business, you know, it, it will many times be, you know, what the owner has, you know, lived in breathed and ate and slept for, you know, the better part of their adult life. So it's certainly a, you know, integral part of, uh, of their identity and of their, um, I guess, professional wherewithal. But at the same time, they have been running it like a family or found their own business. And when they do finally make the decision or come to the conclusion that they need outside capital, it's time to sell, uh, the next generation's not going to take over. They want to retire, whatever the reason is. Then they start to think, okay, well, I'm going to make myself and my company available to outsiders and outside lenders, outside investors. But that doesn't mean that they've taken the steps to uh, not only position from a um, a essence standpoint, but also, and, and just as important, from a perception and from an underwriting standpoint, to position the company um, so that it, it can even be evaluated by an outsider, let alone get the best possible price and the, the most interest possible from, uh, from those outside investors. Well, and having worked with contractors for 25 years, one of the things I noticed is there's so much of their, you mentioned it, identity and their self-worth, uh, their life, it's their baby, it's their family, is attached to that. So do you find that they have a, a tough time letting go? Is, is that the most difficult part of the transition from, you know, saying, here's my company to selling it and, and moving on? Uh, absolutely. I think that they have a, you know, and this really goes back to how we, we met and, and uh, really why we've, uh, we've had such a strong relationship. They have a tough time letting go. And it's, you know, not just their, uh, their identity or their mental health or their attitude or even the things like their physical health, but e even something, you know, taking several steps back, even how they look at selling their business and how they expect other people to, you know, value their business uh, and make decisions about buying their business. You know, as you know, the, their company and them have been one and the same practically. Yes. You know, from their the expenses they run through the business to, you know, what when people see them out and around town, it's, oh, he's the owner of that. He's the president of that. So right. it, it, it is very intertwined. Yeah, that's that's a tough to separate that. And then <laughs> for 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 guys, all our worth is tied up in our work. Women don't have that. They're not so inclined. They they tend to be more holistic in terms of their personal view of who they are. Their mothers, their friends, their grandmothers, right? Their daughters. But men, all our worth comes from our work. And it's a scary thought to suddenly not work. So do do some of the do some of the businesses you buy do the owners uh, do you structure the deal in such a way that the owners stay on for a while? Through, through the more transition? often than not, 
Absolutely. More often than not, that is the case. Going back to, to what you had just said, Mark, about the, their, themselves and their business being intertwined, well, not only does that create problems when you try to separate it, but put yourself in the shoes of an outsider looking to buy the company. If they are the business and you're about to cash them out and they're going to retire, effectively you're saying there's not a whole lot of business left after they leave. Right. Which makes the business not as interesting, not as in demand and, and not as valuable. So you, you ideally you do want, if not the owner, certainly a key management team to stick around through a transition. And um, and that's why you do have to start planning years ahead to make sure you do have that management team and to be realistic as an owner. I'm I'm willing to stick around for, you know, one year, two years, three years, but that you've already thought that through so that when you get offers that have those um, requirements attached to them, you can, you can evaluate them objectively. And that transition process uh, is, is vital to it's, it's like handing a baton off in a track meet, right? In a relay race, it has to be a smooth transition and it takes, sometimes it takes some time, doesn't it? It can take up to two years. Absolutely. One of the things that we encourage business owners to do uh, for, for their sake in terms of preparing for eventual retirement and also for the sake of the business and the managers that they have uh, and should be training to make decisions is for them to start taking vacations and longer vacations and vacations where they are um, more and more unplugged and less keeping tabs on the business. That is the best way to allow the management team to have not only the authority, but the ability to make decisions. And it's a way for the owner to show a prospective buyer, hey, this thing runs without me. Here's proof. I took off the month of July. I checked in for half an hour a week. Everything was fine. And then when they eventually start to wind down their involvement, that they understand that, oh, I've got all this time on my hands. Maybe I, you know, can't golf 20 hours a week. Maybe I do need hobbies. Maybe I want to move closer to my children so I can see my grandchildren more often. Right. right. And, you know, that's a, I always smile when I hear a, a, a young, small contractor uh, who's struggling with growing. He says, I haven't had a vacation in five years. And I, and I say, you know, I don't think I would repeat that out loud in public anymore. That's not something to brag about. The most successful and enlightened contractors I work with take you know, large chunks of time off. And the irony is they'll tell you that the business often runs more successfully and more profitably when they're gone, right? Which is a tough pill to swallow if you're the, if you're the head <laughs> guy. That's a, that's a bruise to our ego, right? <laughs> it, it, it is, and you know, if, if you, you, you can only turn that into a positive and say, look at these great managers and this great company and culture that I've developed that it can run without me. And, right. and that uh, the, mo the, more the more disposable and dispensable you are as a business owner, ironically, the more valuable your business is. Yeah, and it's, it's detachment and letting go, isn't it? Well, you know, the gestation period of an elephant is five years, right? So from soup to nuts, how long does the process take? Let's say I'm a contractor and I'm doing $10 million a year and I've decided after 30 years that I, I want to sell my business and I reach out to you. What's the reasonable expectation for how long that's going to take? 
reasonably speaking, especially if they haven't been doing the pre-work and giving this thought, I think you're looking at six to nine months to prepare to go to market. In other words, to look for other, to look for a buyer or an investor. And then the actual going to market process is another six to 12 months. So conservatively, two years. And if there are holes in the infrastructure of your business, um, th then you're going to have to add on time and it can be a multiple of that. And what I mean by that is you don't have a number two in place. You have to find them. Odds are the first one's not going to work out. The second one has to be trained. You don't have a good accounting system or IT system. Implementing that is easily a year long process. So the two years I mentioned are on, in addition to whatever major projects may need to take place that haven't already. So most people don't marry their high school sweethearts. And what you're saying is, you know, it's, it's pretty rare that, the, that there's not a whole lot of things that they need to do before it actually happens. There may be two or three false starts before they actually sell their business. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, because you know, they find not... out that their P and L isn't where it's supposed to be. Right. Mm -hmm. Or the business isn't worth what they thought it was. One of, one of my yeah, clients. And... Oh, go ahead. Oh, uh, uh, sorry. I was just going to say, you know, I, I think that understandably, and please Mark, correct me if I'm wrong, because you've dealt with more contractors than I have, but it's understandable how they run their business. We, we call it a family ATM. But they're just thinking about, it, it, can it handle my lifestyle? Can I minimize taxes? You know, how much uh, more aggravation do I have to take on? Um, you know, and, and, and I want to kind of minimize all the, uh, all the paperwork. But that's the opposite of what an outsider is looking at. So they, there is going to be a need to shift the mindset when preparing for sale. And if you had to give some advice and tell contractors, look, if, if you're seriously considering this, here's three things you absolutely have to do to at least begin the process of putting your house in order. What are the three things that they need to do? You know, I, I'd say number one, even talking to people like me or other professionals in the marketplace, that can at least give them some guidance on look, realistically, you know, this is who might buy your company. This is how much interest you're going to get. This is how much money you're going to get for it. Aligning those types of expectations, I think the sooner the better, because, um, you know, going back to the identity and the company being one and the same, you know, that also often leads to people thinking their companies are worth more than they actually are in the market. Right. So you need to get, you figure that out sooner rather than later. You know, number two, then I would say just from an information standpoint, getting your house in order. And that's things that you can just start. I almost would, would tell someone it's an extra 10 minutes a day that you want to start doing a year or two beforehand if you're not already. What do I mean by 10 minutes a day? You know, you can flag or put something that is a, you know, legitimate personal expense that you might be running through the company that you wouldn't otherwise if you weren't the owner. Now, when someone comes to look at the business to see how much they're making, it's understandable that they are, there are what we call ad backs, but you're going to have to support that instead of just saying, Oh yeah, you know, I run $200,000 of stuff that it's not an actual business expense through the business. 
you need to start having that documentation, even silly things like your, your corporate charter or bylaws. Anybody's going to want to see that before, um, you know, before closing. And then the last thing that I would say is to start thinking about how the functional the business is in, in your absence. Are you the manager and the salesman and the most technical person on staff or are you everything? Cause again, the, the more you are the business, the less someone's going to want to buy it. So the irony is if I'm going to do this and I'm going to sell my business, I need to make sure that my house is in order and I'm taking more time off. And in order to do that, I have to put systems or processes or people in place to make sure that that can, that actually run without me effectively. Absolutely. It, 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 ironically, the, it, there is a considerable upfront time investment that it takes place over an extended period of time. And the results, the, the outcome should be you've created value, which you'll get from a buyer buying your business. And you will be able to, in the interim, start distancing yourself from the company in preparation for eventual retirement. It's interesting, most contractors think that their business is worth more than it actually is, and they find out much to their own chagrin that fixed assets don't count for much. And unless they own the land or the building, right? What really matters mm -hmm. is, is their database of customers, the profitability of the organization. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but six times net, is that a good rule of thumb for the business valuation or am I off? You're not off. I would say that the um, that there's a couple of major factors that will significantly weigh that multiple. Uh, I'd say the first one is size. So you know, as, as I was explaining to a, a business owner earlier, you know, even if you know you heard about a peer of yours and they sold for X price, and it's probably more rumor than fact, but you have that in your head. Well you know, if they're twice as big as you, all else equal, they're actually going to be worth twice as much, more than twice as much, excuse me. So the, the size matters. You get a higher multiple for a larger business, all else equal. Um, the volatility also matters. I would say those are the two primary categories. And what I mean by that, using the example of a contractor, you know, if all the business is driven by something like new construction, which is more in the feast or famine bucket, you might be closer to two to three times. If all of your business is from repair and maintenance and service contracts and things that are less cyclical, you might be in the eight to 10 times range. Right. So there's some variables there. How much, yeah, how, much, how much does debt play a part in it? D debt does play a large part. And what I mean by that is the more accessible and cheaper and readily available debt is in the marketplace, the more people can afford to pay for your business. Um, so I would almost say in a, in a macro context, and uh, I know that we're uh, having this conversation in you know, the middle of March, 2020, but uh, certainly up until a couple of weeks ago, you know, the um, availability of debt was a huge driver on an overall basis of really in, improving asset values, whether it's a privately held company or even uh, publicly traded companies, they were able to just borrow so inexpensively and buy back shares. If if they made the same money, their earnings per share all of a sudden went up. So 
you know, the, the debt markets, both, uh, I guess, the, the risk-free rate, that lower bound, as well as the overall appetite for uh, debt, for risky debt, absolutely drives valuations of companies. Does owning the building and the land matter? Uh, owning the building and land does not matter. That is more of a personal choice of the business owner. More often than not, if they do own the building and the land, they want to keep that and just receive a, a check and a, an annuity um, for themselves and their family members, just given that it's more of a passive asset. You should assume as a business owner that any outside buyer is going to look at your company and your business excluding the real estate. They may end up buying the real estate. I don't want to say they won't buy it, but their first initial attempt at buying or investing or lending to the business is they're going to strip out those assets and they're going to want to make sure that there's uh, a lease in place that is at a market rate and is, is arm's length in nature. So right. that's another thing to consider for a business owner. Your numbers might look better than they are if you're not charging yourself rent. Right. So tell us the kinds of businesses you buy. We'd mentioned HVAC, uh, plumbing as well, correct? Correct. And what else? Who else? Overall, we tend to look for stable businesses in mature industries that are growing, but slower growing businesses that, you know, candidly, as a result, um, can be acquired for a more reasonable uh, purchase price and in a more reasonable multiple. You know, plumbing and HVAC, I'll just you know, touch on briefly. You know, if you talk to any business owner in that space, as I'm sure you have, uh, if it's not their number one complaint, it's certainly a top three, that there is a, a dearth of, you know, skilled, technical, blue-collar labor out there and that they can't get enough techs. And if they get them, they uh, someone else will pay them a quarter an hour more and lose them and you know, the good ones are retiring. There's not enough young ones coming in the pipeline. So right. generally speaking on a macro basis, businesses that can mobilize and utilize that kind of skilled labor, we think are well positioned for the future. That's a variable you look at, the, the age of their employees? Absolutely. It, it's, a, it's a huge risk. It's almost a you know, key man risk and right. the uh, company needs to be making a continuous concerted effort to retain the technical talent, uh, train technical talent that is young and has potential and recruit technical talent to replace the, uh, the aging workforce. And what's the sweet spot? If, is it five, 10, 15, $20 million, a hundred? Do you, is there a, is there a, a kind of a financial demographic you look at or does that really matter? Absolutely, there is. We tend to play in the space of companies with revenues of 25 to 250 million in revenue. And I would also say as a general rule of thumb, uh, getting to the 20 to $30 million revenue mark starts to open up your options as far as outside buyers considerably. It doesn't mean you can't sell your business if you're 10 to 20 million in revenue. It doesn't mean there's not a buyer out there if it's 10 million or less, but when you're in the lower end of that scale, your buyer is likely to be either a strategic competitor that you already know, already know, or maybe even your own employees or managers of your business. Right. 
I tell contractors that their road to wealth is paid with service agreements. And I've been harping on that for years and years and years. I learned that from my old friend, Ron Smith. But is that true from your point of view? How important are service agreement and the service agreement based? Not only the number of agreements, but the, qual the quality of them as well. Absolutely. That you, you should, uh, Ron Smith is right. And you should keep telling your, uh, your clients that. The, 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 that does two things. It, it lowers volatility and brings stability. And it also introduces uh, more often than not diversification to customers. Right. Because, right? you know, if you're, if you're doing construction, one big project could uh, be the bulk of your revenues for a year. But if you're in the service agreement game, you should have, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of them. And if one of them goes out of business or, you know, moves or switches uh, providers, you're going to be okay. It spreads out your risk. It's steady cash flow. It's work in the shoulder season. It's all of the above. Absolutely. So we've been hitting the we've been hitting the uh, the the nuts and bolts of this thing pretty hard. What do you enjoy most about what you do? What's the most gratifying part of your work? You know, great question, Mark. I think the most gratifying part of, of, of my work and I'd be curious to hear um, your experience as well, but you know, every, um, every business owner, they just have their own unique story. I, I know the entrepreneurial spirit and there's certainly many commonalities, but hearing about how they got into the business or the industry and started it and the challenges they had and the partners or customers or employees they had and how they really got from, you know, their, beginnings so more often than not humble beginnings to where they are now which is you know still being a you know a successful business owner however you define that th those stories tend to be unique and, and very personal and just getting to know the business owner and knowing their story is just uh it's extremely gratifying especially when you can help and and be a small part of it well and as a consultant and as a speaker and as a writer that's a a big part of the gratification for me is to not only be a part of that. Uh, I, I just recently went back and, and worked with a client uh, and I hadn't been there in a number of years and they'd grown from 3 million to 35. And for me, it was a homecoming because they were one of my very first clients and to see the success they're having and enjoying was gratifying, almost like a grandfather, you know, that's how I felt. <laughs> and it, and it is, it's the story, it's the struggle, it's the, it's the grind. And it's the, it's the American story, you know? I started this business in the kitchen table with my wife and now we're doing $20 million a year, whatever the story is. That to me is, uh, is the juice, as they say. Absolutely, and, and you, you know, like I said, you're, it might be a small part, but you're helping them protect or capitalize or realize their life's work and, and you're right, it's not, the end all and be all. I, I think that a good advisor uh, spends as much time um, as anything else helping prepare them for, hey, you're going to have your own new, you know, situation of not having people who report to you and, you know, having a lot of time on your hands. And, you know, I feel like it is always a transition and more often than not a difficult one. But the more that you can prepare them and warn them and set expectations, then, you know, I think, Several months in, they're like, oh, well, you know, this isn't so bad. I'm enjoying it, and I'm glad that I was concerned and, and came up with a, with a plan. If it doesn't kill you, it's going to help. 
Absolutely. <laughs> I, I had the privilege of having dinner with Ken Blanchard one night and he told me a story. He said, uh, when he found out that, you know, the work I do and the, my customer base, he said, he said, I was asked to come out by the CEO of a large manufacturing firm in Alabama and they employed thousands of people. And he said, they brought me in because they heard I was a smart guy and I was a consultant and I could maybe help them. And their turnover was about 200%. And so he's, the CEO is telling him that. And he said, well, maybe uh, I should start and go onto the factory floor and, and talk to some people. He said, well, the CEO said, why do you want to do that? They're leaving. He goes, well, maybe they might have an idea. Why don't, why don't I do that this morning and then I'll report back at lunch. So he went down there and he said, so we started talking to people. He said, so why are people leaving? And they said, it's hot as hell down here. He said, it's so hot, we can't stand it. And, you know, people leave because it's just too hot. So he comes back upstairs at lunch and he tells the CEO, it's hot as hell down there. You need to put in some air conditioning. And he said, that's it? He said, yeah, that's the big one. So he dropped 300000 and put in air conditioning and people stopped leaving. And then Ken got a big fat check. And he told his mother that story. And his mother said, you get paid for that? <laughs> and, and I love that story because, honestly, sometimes the person with, whether it's you or I or anyone else that, that isn't, you know, Jesus had to leave Nazareth to become a prophet, right? Anybody, you know, that lives 100 miles away with a briefcase has a better perspective, an outside eye, than the subjective few that are in the midst of the, of the grind. And uh, I think that's, for me personally, that's one of the most gratifying things that I do is, is to bring that objectivity and, and those simple questions like, why are people leaving? You know, it's amazing, too, because, you know, honestly, sometimes, Jay, the answer is nobody tells me I'm doing a good job. And I said, that's it? Yeah. If they told me that, I, I wouldn't leave. I'd stay or I'd work harder. I'd have a better attitude. And honestly, that's one of the things I teach people how to do is to say, good job. Way to go. I'm glad you're here. I'm proud of you. Amazing. So let me ask you this before we run out of time. Let's assume for a moment that someone out there listening, uh, their interest is peaked and they'd like to contact you. And I've always enjoyed the phrase, tell them I sent you, right? But that's what mm -hmm. I'm doing right here. Tell them I sent you to Jay. So if they contact you, how do they go about contacting you if they want to get the ball rolling on this thing? Well, sure. They can go to our, our website. It's mccumveygroup.com. It's one word, no spaces or dashes. It's M-C-C-O-M-B-I-E-G-R-O-U-P.com. And they can get in touch with me from there. And, you know, th there's no um, – they should, shouldn't feel – inhibited from uh from reaching out and the number one thing that we do and that we want to continue doing is serving as a resource for lower middle market business owners and if they want to talk shop with me pick my brain about something introduce themselves that's um that's what i do so tell them to uh reach out and and let me know that uh that mark sent them well and wait your phone number is 305-741-3020 is that still a good number that, that's perfect. That's that, right. You say it again for the audience. That number again, 305-741-3020. Ask for Jay Lipsy. That's L-I-P-S-E-A-S-E-Y, correct? Correct. Yes. I, I hate it when people misspell my name. So if you had a, <laughs> if you had a chance to say it's a, a parting shot, right? One last, oh, P.S., before I go, 
Ladies and gentlemen, please remember this. What would you say? Please remember to plan ahead and get, doesn't have to be me, but get advice from someone you trust that has your interest at heart that has done this before. Because mm -hmm. odds are you haven't and you only get one shot at it. So find a mentor and by definition, a mentor is someone who's done what you want to do and been where you want to go. Correct. You know, my whole life, I've uh, at first as a technician, then as in sales, and then as a speaker and an author and a consultant. That's literally what I've done my whole life is I found mentors, I, more than one, and I asked them questions and for whatever reason, they helped me. And that's what's fascinating about approaching somebody. You have to ask. Unassertive salespeople have skinny kids, right? We can't be shy. We have to ask for what we want. That, it can't hurt. And um, all the worst thing someone can do is say no. And, you know, you ask enough people, I think you'll, you'll start to get some, some relevant and helpful guidance should come out of it. And it doesn't, like I said, there's plenty of people out there like us. There's some that, uh, that, that are not always um, is experienced or have your best interest at heart. So it really should be someone you trust. Right. But the point is to get you thinking about things from an angle that you wouldn't have otherwise. Well, Jay, I know you're a busy guy and I'm so grateful that you carved out this much time to talk. Thank you so much. And uh, I appreciate the time and our friendship. And I would leave you with this, make it a great day unless you have other plans. <laughs> you too, Mark. Thanks for having me and, uh, and good luck. Thanks, Jay. This podcast is brought to you by the team at Fujitsu General America. And like this podcast, they're focused on education and development. From the day they sold their first comfort system in North America, they've been unwavering in their focus on training. It doesn't matter if it's application, installation, or service. A better trained technician brings better value to the homeowner. So when you're looking for infinite comfort, think Fujitsu. Thank you for listening. If I struck a chord, inspire you to action, or piqued your curiosity, let me know. Call or text me at 206-697-0454 or send me an email at mark at sparkingsuccess.net. Should you wish to hire me to speak to your organization or association or order one of my books, simply go to my website, www.sparkingsuccess.net. And remember, make it a great day unless you have other plans. <laughs>